Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I will be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects, all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and of course, leave a review. My guests today on One for the Road are Sharon and Loretta from the Gavin Sisters and they're an acclaimed comedy double act who have appeared in numerous TV and stage productions and even written plays for the West End. Sharon was diagnosed with a rare autoimmune disease just before her son was born over nine years ago. She was covered from head to toe in a chronic rash and at times was wheelchair bound. On a concoction of very toxic drugs and steroids, she decided she needed to find another way to get better. And as two single mums living together with very young children, they decided they wanted to do everything to get her health back. After extensive research and a lot of trial and error, they together they transitioned into a plant-based diet and they gave up alcohol and processed foods. Loretta retrained as a natural vegan chef and Sharon is now off all drugs and feels better than ever and is even back running. Really hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to leave a review. Today is a very special day for me um, because I haven't just got one guest on today, I've got two. And they're the fabulous Gavin sisters, Sharon and Loretta. And they were introduced to me recently by someone that said, you've got to check these girls out, they're hilarious. And uh, I sent them a lovely message and they sent me a video they recorded on sober dating and I just fell in love with them both. So welcome to my show, Loretta and Sharon. How are you both? We're good. Thank you so much for that really lovely introduction. But I feel a huge amount of pressure to... No pressure, no pressure. Yeah. No (laughs) pressure at all. And um, I also listened to a brief intro to your podcast that you've done as well. And your story is incredible, actually. And I can't wait to get into that. But normally, I wind it back. You're incredibly close sisters, I can see that. And I'd love to know what it's like for you two growing up. Well, we came from a large Irish family. So um, both my parents are from the West Coast of Ireland and we've got two brothers. And it was very much a kind of working class family. Um, And both our parents worked all the time, really hard. My dad was in construction and my mum's a nurse. She used to work nights. Well, she worked twice a week. Yeah. She didn't work every night. No. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so I think because of that, it 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 pushed me and Sharon. We were really, really close. We've always been close, almost like twins, really. Yeah. I mean, I think our overriding memories of kind of growing up together, we shared a room, was that we did not stop laughing. I mean, that is genuinely my overriding memory of my childhood with my sister. The house was very kind of chaotic. It was very open door policy, always friends in and out. Um, we were probably a bit crazy. We were left left to our own devices. Yeah. And this is a little insight to how close we were. We used to have a double bed in our bedroom. And um Do you want to share this? It's actually a bit weird. No, it's not. I think it's quite sweet. And uh we got to like eight or nine, and I said to my dad, 
you know, dad, it's, it's time we had single beds, you know, cause we used to like, he used to wake up every morning with a cup of tea and we'd be like cuddled up with, with each other. And, uh, so he said, okay, well, I'll get you a single bed each. So we got a single bed each and, um, every morning he would walk in and would be cuddled up in one bed together in the single bed. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so that's, went back. that is sweet. We yeah. That's the double bed. Yeah. But yeah. We had to, yeah, it was, it was just lots of fun. I mean, yeah. we've always really made each other laugh. So we've, we've, we've got a really similar sense of humor and we love like observing people and, uh, analyzing people and people watching. And we've always been like that. And as growing up, obviously we first trained as actors. We were always putting on little shows, making up little sketches. You know, if my mum and dad did, they'd have these big Irish parties where they'd play this game called 25, which was, um, a card, a game. card game. They'd all get drunk and everyone play cards and we would make them all watch us perform. I mean, typical kind of bloody, um, I suppose show offs, but, um, you know, it was kind of, it was there innate within us, like comedy, laughing, creating content from a really, really early age. And yeah, we, we had a lot of fun. How old were you then, then when you started doing these little performances? Oh, really young, really like young, from like, four onwards. Yeah. yeah. Like 10, 11, 12, we'd write, we'd, we'd do little sketches where we would take off like, our Irish, my mum and dad all obviously all had lots of Irish friends and we'd become these Irish kind of, kind of characters to really make them laugh, you know. Um And we do this thing where we had our own radio show. So we basically, we'd get a book out, like a really boring book, like the encyclopedia, <laughs> and you just open it on any page and it would be like, I don't know, who invented the atomic bomb or something or it'd be like pig farming yeah and so then I, I i i would have to i would have to be the guest expert talking about pig farming and she goes so today on bbc radio 4 we have and then i and we just make ourselves laugh just trying to talk about pig farming as if we were experts i mean that's <laughs> having no internet for you isn't it yeah um, yeah but yeah so we we just had a really a really like good time and we were a few years the rest is a few years older than me. And we obviously had separate groups of friendships from schools, but we always either combined friendships, didn't we? Mm. We kind of hung out a lot together. And then by the time we got to like, no, I always knew that I wanted to be an actor. Loretta was like predominantly more of a dancer. But by the time I got to sort of 18 and Loretta was like 21, she sort of just shared with me that I want to be an actor too. And I was like, okay, great. Well, let's both try to get into drama school. And we weirdly got into the same drama school, which is kind of unheard of really, because it's so hard to get into drama school. It's like thousands of people apply. And we got into the same drama school and we went to the same drama school. So we trained together in college and we were kind of known as the twins really in college. I mean, we didn't plan, just so your viewers know, it probably just sounds really weird. We didn't plan to combine our families and live together with our children, which we do. I've got a son and Loretta's got a daughter, but we both got divorced. Um, and then it was just the natural thing to combine our families. And we've never looked back since really. Yeah. I mean, already... I would swear that you were just twins. Like I can't remember. There was a program. I think it was Bad Girls with the two Sharons or something. There, there were two, two. Oh, I can't remember them now. But you're like them. Yeah. Like literally, you you almost say the same thing. Yeah. Um And I will stand up for Loretta as well. Um, that you said she's quite a few years older than me. And then I worked out actually there's three years, which yeah, it's you know. three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's three, three and a half. But yeah, mm, three and a half. How would that feel the other way around, eh? I'm not, but I'm not ageist. I'm not. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I'm trying to be age positive now. Now that I'm nearly yeah. fifty. 
Yeah. So you were so, so close together, right? And what happened in the uh, early days when the boyfriend might appear? Was there a bit of rivalry or was you okay with that? We were generally okay. Um, I think sometimes the other one would feel a bit like, oh, what about me now? There yeah. was a bit of that, I think. Yes, maybe slightly, but we just got on with it, you know. And yeah. usually if, if the boyfriend, say the boyfriend didn't like us being close, then he wasn't the right boyfriend because... Yeah. You know, we were close and they had to accept that. And that was part be, of the package, yeah. Yeah, and they had to be confident enough in themselves to go, that, that's fair enough. She's got a, she's got another relationship that's close, you know. Yeah. It's interesting because we've talked about this. We, you know, we talked about if it was the other way around and if it was, if it were brothers that were close, females, I think, would be much more accepting they're, and go. Like they wouldn't be threatened by it. They'd be go, mm. great. Isn't he able? He's able to have really good, close, relationships that's a really good attribute whereas blokes go well I hope she's going to come to me first you know what yeah, I mean yeah. you belong to me love yeah, yeah there is a bit of that my my ex-husband um I mean it was a, a big mistake I to say the least getting married to him but he he was a bit he was threatened wasn't he yeah like if my sister um I, I obviously I lived with my husband at the time and um and she was going through a really difficult phase because her husband actually left her when she was pregnant. Um, and say she like reached out to me in the evening, we were watching something, my phone went off and I was a bit obviously worried about my sister at the time. She had a baby. He'd be like, if I picked up the phone, he'd be like, why are you picking up the phone? You've already spoken to her today. Why did you pick up the phone? You're with me now. Mm. And I'm just like, I found it so suffocating that he'd be so threatened. I'm not saying like every night we're in the middle of watching a movie, that is annoying, your phone keeps going off. But we're just, it, it, I, I would be traveling. We went traveling for three months. And, you know, obviously I wasn't with my sister. And if I went to call her, I'd be like, but you called her two days ago. Mm. I'd be like, I can call her every day if I want to. Yeah. Why do you need to kind of like control me so much? Um, but it was a problem with him, but he was a problem person. So I don't think it really was no, about us. No, no. Um, yeah. So and I so I, yeah we did we you know when Loretta was married before her husband ran off we lived together we I we had a flat together and then he moved in um, and it was fine. Mm. So your husband ran off. Yes. Uh, and you got divorced. So then did you move back in together on your own? Like did you have no. kids? So uh, my my husband ran off uh, well had an affair when I was uh, six months pregnant. So I basically, he left and I had a baby on my own. And then about a year later, um, Sharon got pregnant and then she got very sick. And then um, she had the baby. And then a year later, she left her husband and then she moved in with me. So Loretta had already had a house set up and luckily yeah. it was big enough that we could move in. So you know, lots of people sort of always say to me, amazingly, because I was very, very unhappy. I'm not going to talk too much about it because obviously it's the father of my child, but mm. it was a very, very toxic environment. And, you know, lots of people sort of say to me, God, you were so brave to leave. You only had a baby that was a year. That must have been really difficult and you were sick. And I'm like, I was really lucky. You know, I, I had my sister, my best mate, who was also a single mum, you know, um, that I could move straight into, you know, and I think, there's a lot of women out there in very toxic situations and it is not as easy as no. just getting your baby and just finding somewhere mm. to live. You've got you know, the expense, the rent. The... I was so lucky that I had mm. Loretta. Mm. So let's talk about that a little bit. What, what do you mean you got sick? So 
as I said, you know, I, I was in a very um, toxic marriage. I was constantly in fight or flight, um, basically. Obviously, I fell in love with him originally. Um, and he's got some really good sides of his personality, uh, which I fell in love with. Um, and my son gets to see those really good sides of his personality. But uh, he was very, very, very up and down. So he could switch. And if he switched, it was unbearable to be around. And um, I, I mean, even talking about it now, when I actually talk about it, and it's a long time ago now, but I was constantly in fight or flight. I just didn't know what I was going to get. Mm. Um, so I was tiptoeing around a lot. And then, you, you know, then we might hit a really good period and it'd be like, you know, three weeks of, of it being really good. And I'd be like, oh, this is why I fell in love with him. He's really clever. He's really charming. He's got so many attributes that I admire. And this is why I've made the right decision. I've made the right decision. This is, I do really love him. And then it would switch again. And it was abusive, emotionally abusive, really. Um, and I was constantly in fight or fly, uh, constantly stressed. Um, and you know, people deal with stress differently. I mean, he he can, and I think there are people out there that can, can compartmentalise. They're actually driven by a lot of conflict. They thrive in high conflict, and it doesn't really affect them. They could have a massive blazing round, go out to work and sort of be fine, just leave it on mm. the doorstep. I can't do that. So it would really stress me up. I'd be thinking about it. I'd be, I have really anxiety. I don't like conflict. I don't, I, I'd hate going to, to sleep on an argument. It was, for me, it was awful. He could just like switch off seemingly. Mm. Um, so I think people say, you know, genetics loads the gun and environment trigger it. Can't remember who originally said that, but, um, I think that's very much the case. So I was obviously genetically predisposed for an autoimmune disease you give it the right environment look not looking after myself that amount of stress um I drank I drank quite a lot actually I would drink every evening um I mean I wasn't an alcoholic and I wouldn't drink like a bottle of wine but I'd have at least two large glasses of wine and that would just take the edge off um that is too much for women it's just it's too much actually no amount of alcohol is actually safe the science is now telling us anyway um, but I was, that was a release for me. Those two glasses of wine in the evening were, were, were was my supposedly happy place. So, you, you know, you give it, you don't, you don't nourish yourself enough. You're not looking after yourself. I mean, I exercised, but I wasn't, you know, uh, but it mainly was that stress. Um, and then basically I woke up one morning. I, I, I was six weeks pregnant, which I was absolutely thrilled to be pregnant. I really wanted a child. Even in that marriage, I was really driven by having a child. And I did still love him. It's, it was very, it's very confusing when you love someone that's, that's not good to you as well. But anyway, um, I, um, I was six weeks pregnant, absolutely over the moon to be pregnant. And then I woke up with this horrific rash. Um, and it, it seems to, got worse in the light. I thought it was like prickly heat. I was like, something's really not right. I thought it was a pregnancy thing. Then I went to the doctors, I went to a dermatologist. They said it's acute eczema. Like maybe this has been set off by the pregnancy. And then a few weeks later, I noticed that my arms just didn't feel right. So I'd try, I'd be eating, like just even eating. I'd be like, my wrist is sore, you know, or I'd like put my arms up to get dressed and my arms would ache, just like holding them over my head. Um, and I was like, this is really weird. And so I went back to the GPs and they quite quickly uh, diagnosed me and got a rheumatologist involved really, really quickly uh, with dermatomyositis, which is sort of similar to lupus, um, but it basically attacks the muscles. Um, so you, your muscles stop working. Um, and 
it wasn't degenerative, but it was um, until the drugs kicked in, it was really bad. Um, it got it got worse quite quickly, and I was pregnant, and I got to a point where I couldn't really dress myself. I couldn't get up out of a sofa. I could barely walk. I just I just lost the ability to move really. Um, and then, and I'd fall a lot and I just weakness, muscle weakness, extreme muscle weakness. So I went to the doctors. Um, and as I said, they said, look, we can put you on some medications. This isn't curable, but it is treatable. So like any autoimmune disease, I was put on immune suppression drugs where they sort of suppress the immune system within an inch of its life. So it's just about functioning. So you, you know, you don't get cancers. Um, but it stops the body attacking itself. Um, and it worked a bit. It took about four months to kick in and it worked a bit. I would say it got me like 50% better. I mean, nothing really worked for the skin, but it got me moving again. I could walk, I could dress myself. You know, I wasn't back to who I used to be, but I was functioning and I was really grateful just to be functioning. I would have taken any drug under the planet to get better. Um, and then when I got a bit better, I then had the energy to start to go, oh, I wonder if there's anything I can do. I wonder if there's any lifestyle factors that I can do to help myself. You know, I had a two-year-old um, son at that point, And, you know, I felt quite sad because I was like, he's never going to see the version of me before I was sick. And that version I quite liked. I was always, I've always been quite a high energy person with a lot of get up and go. And I was like half the version of myself. And I was like, oh, that's that's a shame because I really couldn't wait to be a mum. And I was like, I thought I'd be going to be a really fun mum. And I'm like, this is a bit crap. You know, I have to go for a lie down every afternoon. Um, so I had high motivation to get better. And I went back to the doctors and I was like, look, is there anything I can do? I'm on all, the, all these medications. Some of them, you know, side effects is lymphoma cancer, it says on the packet. I mean, you know, is there anything I can do? And they were like, not really. No, there's no science, no evidence that anything you can do, food, drinking, nothing will help this. Once it's kicked off, it's kicked off. So I was like, what about the wine? I mean, I have a couple of glasses of wine a night. I mean, obviously by then I was obviously, I was drinking actually a lot less because I had had the sun and I just couldn't, but I was still drinking, I'd say three times a week, maybe. And they said, you know, it's very, you know, because it's quite, it's quite heavy, the drugs I'm on, you know, for the liver, like the alcohol, is there anything you should, should, is it okay to drink wine? I mean, I desperately wanted the doctor to say, yes, you can drink wine. And he did say yes. He's like, yeah, I'll have two glasses of wine, absolutely fine. So I was like, okay, carry on, don't change. Um, but it then kept niggling at me. I was like, what if I can do this? Surely there's people that have got off these medicines and cut a long story short, I started to do lots of research. This was 12 years ago as well. And you've got to remember, no one was talking about the microbiome. No one was talking about gut health. If you said, oh, leaky gut, which is what it was kind of known as then, they, they thought you were a witch doctor. Um, so, but I found people that got better and I found people that had chronic autoimmune diseases like lupus, Crohn's, MS, um, and had got better and off all drugs. And they had correlating factors. And they probably, sorry, I, this is a bit of a long story. I'm coming to an end. Um, but if you've seen the Blue Zones on Netflix, which I do recommend, there are some really core factors here that got people better. Uh, number one, especially for me, was was environment, getting myself out of that toxic situation. So I left my my husband when my son was a year. I also thought I will not bring my son up in this environment. So I left him. Uh, the people that got better, so they eradicated, you know, toxic stress. We all have stress, but I'm talking toxic stress, like a boss that bullies you or a husband or just something that's so toxic to your system that every day you feel like extreme anxiety. 
So they they got themselves out of that situation. The ones that I looked at became plant-based, but not like, you know, chips are plant-based. You know, we're talking nutritionally dense, whole food, plant-based diet, lots of high raw foods, lots of juicing. They cut processed uh, foods, they cut processed sugars, they cut alcohol. Um, so, you know, I, I've got to be honest, when I looked at what I had to do, I was a bit like, oh, shit, maybe I'll just take the drugs. I don't know if I want to do all this, you know. I might change my life, but I'm going to be miserable eating lettuce and drinking water. You yeah. know, I, I so thought that my joy was wrapped up in that glass of wine or, you know. So, but I turned to Loretta and I was like, what What if this works? I mean, these people have got better. They were really sick. What if this worked? And I kind of said, look, can you help me? I can't do this on my own. Yeah, she said, if, you're, if, if I'm going to do this, you're going to do it with me. Um, so she moved in with me and... Um, it's quite interesting because um I I wasn't sick, obviously. Um I, I, I was I was well. Um, but I'm quite cynical in the fact that I'm, you know, you know all these sort of you must see this on Instagram, all these wellness people going, Oh, I I ate blueberries every day and now I look twenty and it's mm. not the Botox. It's it's not the filters. It's my blueberries. And I used to hate that bullshit for everyday people, yeah. you know, looking at Instagram and you know, watching people and thinking, oh, if I do that, I'm going to be that. Um, so I've, I, I ha- I've got a, quite a lot of cynicism. But what I found was, you know, I started doing it with Sharon. And, you know, I don't want to oversimplify this. It wasn't like she did everything all at once. We did it slowly. Um, and we did it bit by bit. And then slowly but surely, small little changes happened. I mean, alcohol was first, wasn't it? Alcohol yeah. was the big one. And, um, I actually, I, I, I was, I would call it, I think you call it a uh, gray, is it gray, gray area drinking where yeah. you're not an alcoholic and you're not, um, you're just Take like, or leave it. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I was compelled to drink every week and I couldn't wait to drink. I couldn't yeah. wait to open that glass of wine. And I remember thinking, I can't wait till I'm pregnant because I'm sure that will stop me. I mean, that's not right, is it? You know, um, but I wasn't an alcoholic, you know. I, it wasn't a bottle of wine a night, but it was a good, we'd share a bottle of wine every night. Yeah. Or I'd share it with my husband, yeah. So um, I always say when people ask us, and I know this is geared at kind of the sober community, I always think it, it was the it was the giving up drink that was the catalyst for everything. So Sharon moved in with me and I remember I, I was looking after Sharon I had a two-year-old because obviously my husband left when I was pregnant. I had Sharon's baby and I, you know, I, I want, you know, I, I wanted Sharon to get better. So I had high motivation. Um, and I thought I need all the energy I can surmount to get through this period. At the same time, my mum actually got diagnosed with breast cancer. So it was like a car crash bit of my life. I, I know everyone gets that bit in their life or bits in their life when it's the shit bit. This was my shit bit. Mm. It was like I was reading it in like, you know, when you go to the doctor's surgery and you open one of those magazines and you read about someone's life and you go, oh, my God, that's awful. That's hideous. That that was me. <laughs> but it was mm. me. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, this is my life, you know. So I thought in order to get through this bit where, you know, Sharon was sick, I had two tiny babies, my mom was sick. I need energy. I need as much energy as I can possibly get. And I cannot drink. I cannot wake up in the morning with red line lips rocking in a corner going, I hate my life. I just can't do that. So the first thing we did was we gave up alcohol. And I always say that is the best thing I've ever done because it was the catalyst for so much. It 
changed my life beyond recognition. And once I knew I could give up alcohol, I knew I could do anything. And I also knew that it became addictive because the more I I didn't drink, the more I got interested in other sides of my life, like what, okay, what does food do? What does exercise do? How does that change my energy? And I, I became happier. I mm. became more productive. I became more focused. I felt like I could, whatever challenges were thrown, the shit that gets thrown at you, I thought I can handle it. I can handle this. I can, I, I, I felt more positive. I think as well with the drink as well, it's that kind of like peace in your heart like yeah and also like a lot of the time I'd be like going I'm really really stressed oh, I'm probably just stressed because I had a couple of glasses of wine last night once you take that out it gives you a lot of clarity you can work out actually I'm a bit stressed about that actually I'm a bit stressed about money you know what mm. I mean it's not because I've got I'm anxious because I've drank you know that four o'clock in the morning anxiety of oh I said I wasn't going to drink last night and I did and now I feel a bit groggy I'm gonna have to go for a run to try and get rid of this mood it's the irritability as well you know, um, that, that alcohol, it, it just gives you nothing. It gives you nothing. Um, and whenever we run our retreats, we talk about this and I have to kind of go, look, I know this isn't a popular message and, you know, this isn't AA and all of that, but I just want to share with you. It gives you nothing. And once you become completely free of it, it's not about being, it's not about you're being restricted or you're being more disciplined. You'll get, you're getting freedom back. And we always say, you know, at the beginning of this podcast, you asked about our childhood and that that kind of funny, raw banter, having a laugh type energy you have as kids. You have that in you. Okay. And as you get to an adult, you start drinking because you think that's what's fun. And it's not fun. You are that same. You are that same kid, but you're just a bit more grown up and you can tap into that fun, high energy um, thing as an adult without alcohol, you know, Mm. Um, so yeah, Loretta kind of did it all with me. And in the end, we became plant-based, gave up alcohol, became plant-based, then you'd retrained. Yeah. So basically we, I started cooking and, and doing all the good foods to get her better, you know, really, really slowly. Um, I said at the beginning, we come from a large Irish family. They'd come around for dinner and they'd be like, um, we, we've eaten before, before, we, before we came. Because oh. I thought, oh, vegan, it's going to be hideous. It's going to be shit. Um, but they were like, this food's really good. And I became more and more passionate about it. And I retrained as a natural vegan chef. And I learned about nutrition alongside food. Um, and then we used to go away with our girlfriends. And um, they would, like, we, we, we've got a place in Suffolk. So they'd all get pissed. And me and Sharon would obviously be sober. And then in the morning, we'd get up. And we'd put our running stuff on and we'd be doing ginger shots and they'd all wake up and they'd be like, oh, how do you do this? You've got to teach people how to how to do this, you know. And that's how the idea came, because obviously, you know, we're a comedy double act, but we also wanted to do something else. And um, we said, yeah, that's a really good idea. How do we teach people? Because. This stuff doesn't come naturally. You have to, and I'm sure that you've done the same thing. You have to brainwash yourself. You have to, you have to look at like-minded people. You have to join communities, which is why your community is so good. You have to find other people. You have to align yourself. You have to keep reading and every day you have to keep reminding yourself. Um, and, and that's difficult. So that's when we set up the detox farm and we just feel so privileged to do something that we love. And hopefully what well, it does, it makes a difference to people that helps just 
even in a tiny little way, change the course of their journey or rethink how they actually want to live for the next 10 years, you know? I agree. Um, And I think it's planting a seed without forcing it, you know, not, not um, standing on a soapbox saying drink is the brew of the devil and that it's, it's being sensible about it because otherwise people are going to go, well, do you know what? It's your problem, not mine. It's make, make people think about their own relationship with alcohol. And it's interesting what you said before earlier as well. When you said, you know, I'm a grayer drinker, I'm not an alcoholic. And it's the way we talk to it ourselves, right? It's what we, the language we use to ourselves is, I'm not an alcoholic, so I can't be that bad, right? Mm-hmm. And as you said earlier, no alcohol is good for you. Like literally mm-hmm. zero alcohol is the way to go. In my eyes, what, what I've read, how I've educated myself, there's nothing good in alcohol. Um, so when the doctor said to you, yeah, a couple of glasses, all right. You know, I've had doctors say, well, you drink less than I do. <laughs> I have. Really? And, and I think, I think that, um, I mean, I don't want to be sued here, but I think that there's a lack of education with doctors as well, because there's no referrals apart from AA or, or like reduce. Why don't you just reduce? That kind of language, because yeah. there's a certain amount of time you've got as well. So if you're going, I, I mean, I'll give you an example for me. I I lived a, um, quite a similar life to you, Sharon, and my, as in stressful environment, and my high, fight or flight was roaring and, you know, and I went to the doctor's and said, look, I, I feel really low, depressed. Like, it, it wasn't just down, I felt depressed. And there were some days I didn't want to get out of bed. Some days didn't want to answer the phone. Other days didn't want to go to work and face anyone. And uh, he just put me straight onto antidepressants, didn't ask me anything about drinking. And I took those for about three months. And I think in the beginning they helped a little bit, but that could have been psychological Mm -hmm. that was on him. And then I went back. And I was in there two minutes. He just literally, it was a different doctor because now you can't even see a doctor, but then you just saw anyone. Yeah. Uh, and they read your notes and said, oh, well, we're, we're putting you on 100 milligrams of sertraline, which was double. And I, because I was drinking the way I was drinking, I literally went psychotic. I went mad. And for anyone who's read my book, there was a bit in Eastbourne where I just vanished down to Eastbourne. My phone went flat and I, I had four days of sleeping on the beach and I went mad, basically. And when I went back to the doctors, I was in there for 55 minutes because I think they realised they'd messed up and it could have killed me, you know, with a mixture of the alcohol and the prescribed antidepressants and whatever. And I think it's something that needs to be addressed, to be honest, because more and more people are going and being prescribed all this crap. It's just almost palming us off. I think it is changing, but changing really slowly. I mean, we've had doctors on our podcast. We've had Dr. Um, Bajakal, who is, she's actually a top gynecologist, but she's now a sort of plant-based medicine doctor as well. And um, she's doing some really, really great work. But obviously, it's kind of functional medicine because she's very much, you know, the science, very much the science, but she knows what nutrition can do. And she is basically telling her patients and, you know, and anyone that will listen that zero alcohol, it's zero alcohol. In Canada now, the government who are not listening to like basically being sponsored by 
you know, giving donations from food companies. They're listening to the science. They are saying zero alcohol. It is a number one carcinogenic mm. and it should be seen as the same as smoking. Uh, so it is changing. We have found doctors, but in the mainstream doctors, I don't know. It's slow. I think, you know, I always feel like it's this kind of dirty little secret. I feel like I've got this secret that I'm not allowed to share because, mm. you know, as you said, we're not allowed to to share it because people hate you. It's not popular. They, it's not popularly despise you. So I have to do it in a way. I have to, one, I think you're right, is just be a role model and be a beacon. And then they see your energy and then they ask you questions rather than ramming it down people's throats. Um, but it culturally, it's still that thing of you're boring, yeah. you know, get you a life, you only live once, little, oh, I just have a little bit, or whatever the, the narrative is. Um but I feel like it's this little secret that we've all got. We've got this little club and it's so exciting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I want to shout from the rooftops. It's the best thing you'll ever do. I go to bed every night and I've got peace in my heart. I yeah. wake up, I feel excited for the day. You yeah. know, most people don't get, get that, you know. And I think what's interesting, what you said about grey area drinkers, and this might be a bit controversial, but I'm going to say it. In some ways, I think it's harder for them than it is for people with chronic problems. Mm. Because when your problem is so chronic, you've got no choice. You've you got to, to you've it. got to bloody change because it's either life or death. Whereas grey area drinkers, it's like it's sort of acceptable and it's not life and death. So it, the, the motivation for change is not there. They're high-functioning. Yeah. high-functioning. Nothing in their life is really being affected. Obviously, it is inwardly. But nothing like they keep their jobs, they've got good relationships, share a bottle of wine every night with their partner. Um, so it's not really affecting them. It is affecting them. You know, it will be affecting their mood, their irritability, the food choices they make. But on the grand scheme, it's not big enough to make them change. And that's the problem. Yeah, I'm just trying to think about how I was because I was the other end of the scale. You know, yeah. I was a litre of vodka a night at one stage. And, you know, when you say, look, I had no choice, I did have a choice because my I didn't choice... Mean to was... demit- I didn't mean to... No, no. A little, I, I, you're, you know what I mean? No, no, I, and you didn't. I'm just trying to see it from both angles. I think for me, I did have a choice, but I, I wanted to change. Yeah. And there was a point I didn't care um, because I've gone so far down the line mm. that at one point I was going through the drawers to find some enough tablets to take to end it because I couldn't stand where I was in my life and who I'd become. But it got to a point that I had to want to change. And I think for grey area drinkers, there were millions and millions around the world that I think if you know you've got a problem, if you, if, you know, I always say, it's not about the amount you drink. It's how how it makes you feel. Mm-hmm. And that could be one or two glasses of wine a night. Um, and it affects how you parent your kids, how it affects your relationship, how it makes you sleep, how it increases your anxiety, if it makes you feel low. Um, you know, and plenty of people rock up. I've said this before. The, the functioning women who rock up in the playground with little Johnny or whatever and hi, morning, all the makeup ready for work, but inside they might be dying. Yeah. Where yeah, men yeah. are like get in the van and they go, car oh, got absolutely bollocks last night. Oh, hey, I'll be on it again tonight. You know, <laughs> for men and women, it can be quite different. 
you know. Um, well, I, I actually think there's a there's a, a correlation there. I think women can be a bit like that as well. A bit like, oh, gin o'clock, you know, school mums, are we going to get the bottle of wine in the bo- book club? It's like... That's before though, isn't it? That's always yeah, oh, before. That's before. It's not that yeah, after, yeah. you know. Yeah, and I yeah. find, you know, like I, I was, um, when I was in the carpet trade, quite often at four o'clock, quarter to four, um, the mummies would come back and you hear the pop of the Prosecco and whatever. And I quite often wondered, actually, after that little stint, how many of the mums went home and opened another bottle and yeah, never yeah, said yeah. about it in the playground in the morning, right? Because no one wants to share that, do we? Do you know no. what? Um, I, I went home and done another, six. yeah, another bottle of Prosecco on my yeah, own. Yeah, and I did, yeah, I forgot yeah. to put my kid to bed. Do you know what I mean? So that there's an incredible stigma behind it. But I think it's within yourself. If you think to yourself, do you know what? If you start asking yourself the question, I think I could do with cutting down. And the other question is, well, can I have a, a glass of wine and then stop at one and have a cup of tea? That, that kind of question is really important. And this is why these um, conversations are so useful because they can make people actually think about where they are with it. I also think, and this is my personal opinion, I believe that it is far harder to cut down than it is to give up. I, I tr- I've been trying to cut down for, for, years. for 30 years. Yeah. I've been trying to cut down and I did, but it was never easy. It was never easy because I'm always thinking, okay, Thursday, I, I can drink on Thursday and then something happens. And then that's my catalyst. And then I'm like, oh, I'm going to drink on Thursday anyway. So I might as well start on Wednesday. And it's been an awful day. And, you know, I've got to, I'll drink Wednesday. And I spent my whole time doing that. And the mental energy it takes trying to drink less, it was huge. Whereas when I gave up, when I finally gave up, it was easy mm. because I'd made that decision and I wasn't going, will I, won't I? Oh, I'd love to. Oh, I can't. Oh, uh, uh. it's that is, that is horrendous, I think. And I think as well that, I mean, we talk a little bit about this when we're hosting retreats as well, but. Yeah, that everything in moderation, uh, that works for a very small percentage of people. You know, I have one friend that can have two Maltesers, do you know what I mean? And then put the packet away. <laughs> Most people, you know, will, it'll be a sliding scale, you know, where you sort of go, I'm not going to drink. And then it's really hard. And then someone says, oh, let's have a drink. I've had a shit day. Come and help me drink. You know, and as you know, you know, drink is for like when you're down. Culturally, it's for when you're down. It's to celebrate. It's to commiserate. It's to boredom as well. I mean, it's every which way a drink is celebrated. Um, So trying to cut down, I think for a lot of people, is much, much harder than just giving up. I, I did a post actually, and it really hit. And uh, it was uh, moderation is like dumping your toxic ex and sleeping with them at the weekend. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's so true. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm, I'm going to share that on my Instagram. I like that. I love that. Yeah. As long we, as also, we also read a book. So this show must have been on our radar in our early 30s because, again, I was, you know, drinking probably a bottle of wine, sharing a bottle of wine most evenings. And then maybe opening another one and having one more glass and yeah. then waking up the next day and going, right, I'm going to get on my bike and then getting on my bike and then going, I'm not drinking tonight. I'm definitely not drinking tonight. And then getting to six, seven o'clock and then going, oh, shall we? And then doing Let's the same it. thing yeah. over and mm. over and over again. And we, we read a book. And I, and I mean, you know, fundamentally, even when I look back now, I think we've said this to each other, like... Because I think it's drinking like that, although it is just addictive as well, it's got lots of sugar in the alcohol and it is actually quite addictive, but 
It's also there's a low self-esteem, I think, that drives it. Uh, there is an unhappiness, I think, that does drive it. And at the time, we were doing lots of comedy. We were getting really quite far, but not quite, you know, tipping over to where we wanted to be. And there was a slight unhappiness. And I think that's kind of bullshit anyway, because, you know, thinking that your happiness is in, in achieving some sort of milestone is bullshit anyway. Happiness isn't everything you do every day. That's what makes you happy. But I didn't know that then. So I thought the drink was kind of, you know, just a way of releasing frustration, maybe of where I was in my life. But I also think there's a, a low self-esteem thing there as well. I mean, the fact that I married someone that, that wasn't a good person, that, that's a low self-esteem. There's definitely areas there that that were perhaps I needed to look at but um we bought a book and it was um how to cut back on drinking and I think it's Alan Carr isn't it mm. um basically we were like okay let's just want to cut back a bit so we read the book and then you get to the end of the book I don't know if you've read this book but it says you can't cut back you need to give up we like, throw the book we threw the book away I don't want to bloody give up, give up. Mm. but he was saying that basically everyone is on a sliding scale of becoming an alcoholic I mean, oh, yeah, I don't know whether I agree on that or not, but at the time I was quite shocked by it. Yeah, I'm, like, yeah. I'm not going to end up an alcoholic. I can sustain this level of drinking, but that level of drinking is an addiction. Oh, 100%. Like, I'm drinking every night. There is an addiction yeah. there. I'm just not drinking a bottle of vodka when I wake up. Yeah. You know? But what you said there, Loretta, was interesting because you said, and then we open the next bottle for one more glass, right? Yeah. That is the sliding scale because in my experience, people that come to – get support from me, I always say, when they say, oh, I drink a bottle of wine a night, and I go, is that accurate? Because, you know, if you start digging into the second bottle for that one more for nightcap, mm. yeah. does that often go into actually waking up in the morning and that bottle's gone and you don't remember drinking that bottle? Um, because that's the sliding scale because it's an incredibly yeah. addictive drug. And your tolerance levels go up as well. And it might be the weekend or you've got a day off the next day and go, do you know what? It doesn't matter because I can have the extra little bit and ruin your whole next day. Mm. And there's a, a animation I quite often share with my clients and it's called Nuggets Addiction. And people can search it on YouTube and it's of this bird going along this straight line and there's a golden nugget. And the first time it ignores the nugget and the second time it takes a sip at the nugget and a bit like the Red Bull ever where it floats up and it's like gave it wings. And the more it goes down the sliding scale, the more it gets darker and darker and darker. And yeah. that is just absolutely spot on to me that, you know. Yeah, I, mean, I think I think for us, it was never like we would share a bottle of wine. And I think you're right, the tolerance. So that wasn't quite hitting it. But that one extra glass after we've shared a bottle of wine, that would be it. We wouldn't then finish the bottle of wine. No, To be no. honest, we wouldn't. It, but I always knew that that was too much. Like, why wasn't I just stopping at the bottle? We would always... But even a bottle of wine... That's too much. It's for way our, too much. I mean, we're tiny. You yeah, know, I'm five foot. I'm eight stone. You know what I mean? Like, that is way too much. But my tolerance was getting quite high. So even like... You know, those two and a half glasses, say it's two and a half glasses each in a bottle. It wasn't quite giving me that hit of complete release. So then I needed an extra glass. As I said, we wouldn't then drink more, but it was still wait. I still had a problem with alcohol because I was doing it every night. I wonder, sorry, I wonder as well whether you both reined each other in a little bit as well, that if you were actually on your own, whether that might have been a little bit different. Because I know for me... I lived on my own for donkey's years uh, and I that's how it happened for me because I was I had no accountability. 
and mm. maybe there was something there that kept you reined in. I don't in. know. I think, I think probably it was the other way round. I think we spurred each other on. Yeah. Because I think it, maybe we both went, you know, well, tonight we're not going to drink. And then just one, one of us would go, oh, should we just have one? And I go, okay. I mean, the thing about me is that I didn't like being plastered. I didn't actually. I like just the feeling of feeling fuzzy. So yeah. I never was a kind of binge drinker, more, more, more. I would just hit that spot and then I'm happy. So I didn't crave that all blackout type thing. And I didn't really like being really, really drunk and really, really hungover. But I just liked the release it was giving me, you know. Um, but as I said, it was it was too much, you know, and that no amount of alcohol is safe. I mean, who who do you know that drinks that actually drinks within the guidelines? I would say a very, very small mm. percentage. Mm. If you're if they're being honest, if they're actually being honest. Yeah, because what is it, 14 now? Um, which isn't <laughs> very much to go over that, is it really? No. No, no. Um, five pints a week, I think, or something like that. Mm, mm. Um, and those guidelines need to change as well. Well, it's I uh, don't get me on soapbox about the yeah. the driving limit as well. I think it should be zero as I well. Think yeah, it zero as well. Yeah, you know? absolutely. But it's weird when you said about the chocolate. Like, I've always thought I'm really greedy, right? Because if I have one Malteser, I want the box. Yeah. If I have one bit of cake, I want the whole cake. You know, and that that's what I was like with my drinking. I was greedy yeah. well. That's got nothing to do with you because we have lots of people that say that and they go, that story that they, they tell themselves, I'm that sort of person that, you know, when I have a Maltese or I need the whole packet or a cake or whatever. And I always say to them, that that's normal. The reason why that's normal is because it's got fat, sugar and salt to such high intensity that when you eat that, it, it, it's basically like having crack and mm. it, it gives you dopamine. And the same with the alcohol. And we're human beings and we become addicted to that dopamine. Nothing wrong with you. It's absolutely nothing wrong with you. That's just chemicals in your body that we become addicted to. That's you know? really, really spot on, actually. And I'll tell you why, because uh, people know listening to this podcast, I had a test done. Mm. Uh, and my dopamine receptors shot, it doesn't work. So, like, any amount of dopamine is like, wow, like that. Now, I can go to the Derby in Epsom and put a fiver on a race and win, and I won't bet for the rest of the day because that doesn't lift my dopamine. I'm not bothered about gambling. I've never been somebody who can go in a betting shop and sit there and win. I, I can't stand gambling, right? Oh. So that, that does nothing for my dopamine. But... With the chemicals, yeah, that, what you're saying I'm putting in my body, that's an yeah. interesting point, actually. Uh, and it was the same with alcohol. I'd have a drink, and where you maybe could make it last uh, half an hour for glass of wine, me, I'd have chucked it down my neck, and all you do is got, 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 got mm. big glass of wine, chuck it down my neck. So yeah. I was, I was always searching for that extreme dopamine, yeah. I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I do like a gamble. I think if I had money, I could be. Uh, I could be. A, a, oh well, this is for a whole different episode, isn't it? <laughs> tell me about your retreats then. What? Where did this idea come up? It's in Suffolk. Do you want to tell me about that? Yeah. So basically, as I said, you know, we 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 used to go away with our girlfriends and we'd cook them all dinner and um, we'd make breakfast and we'd be sort of like out running 
and we'd be telling them about all the research we did because the better and better Sharon got, the more involved we got in wellness and research and, you know, finding different ways of living well. Um, so we, we were becoming very knowledgeable and, um, they, they say to us, do you know what? You, you need to help people do this. You need to help other people do this. And that's really how it started. So we, we, we started about five years ago and we set up a retreat. We set up something that Sharon and I would love because at the time we'd go to these retreats. And I mean, I'm not to knock other retreats because there's some amazing retreats, but some of them were a bit, a bit worthy, a bit namaste, a bit. My truth is everything. Mm. Yeah. I went on one particular retreat and every time I'd go, so, you know, like, why don't you eat like avocado? What, what's wrong with avocado? Just like they'd be like, well, my truth is, and every answer would be my truth is, so there's no judgment. And I was just a bit like, you just lost me properly. <laughs> well, why don't you fucking eat avocados? Just tell us. Um, so we wanted to create something that was wellness, but also down to earth and fun and engaging and just not too spiritual, people. wacky, you know. Um, and there is... We do do meditation and we do do an amazing sound bath, but we wanted something relatable and you didn't have to like, you know, fly about with fairy wings in the garden and <laughs> have trees and stuff, you know. Um, so that's what we created. We created a, a, a retreat that Sharon and I wanted to go on and it's got like, you know, nutrition workshops. Um, we the, re- do, the rest of it does all the cooking. I do all the, so it's all kind of plant-based food, nutrient dense, no one is hungry. So, you know, all the food, you, you know, people are so surprised. They walk away and they thought, oh, we thought we we're going to be starving. Um, but it's not at all. It's just really nutrient dense food. Um, there's yoga. We have do treatments. It's all obviously in the beautiful countryside. I mean, it's, it's we've got small. one in Portugal as well in the Algarve, which is, oh my God, just amazing. We did the first one last year. And I mean, me and Sharon loved it ourselves. It was just yeah. amazing. It, even though we were hosting it and it's, it's a lot of work, we actually felt like we were on holiday with our guests. Yeah. It yeah. It was brilliant. Mm. So we've just launched that and that's the five nighter. And we do that in May and October now. So, we just love hosting them. You know, it's a job, but it's not, you know. Um, and what I think the most interesting thing about it, I don't know if you've ever done a retreat, but you, you get people from all different walks of life and you connect with people that you would n- not necessarily connect with in real life. And I've watched people, you know, you probably have this with your sober community, you know, a director of a bank chatting to a porn star. Yeah. And, and, and you know what I mean? And you go, this is incredible. Yeah, you know, this yeah. is so amazing. And then on, on the back of that, we, we launched our own coffee. Um, I, do you drink coffee, uh, Dave? I, I drink decaf coffee. Ah, uh, okay. Oh, um, don't tell me you don't do that. No, well, we do. No, we only do. It's, it's triple certified organic coffee boosted with adaptogens. Um, okay. so I'm not sure if you, if you're off the coffee. I mean, people that don't drink coffee drink it and say it, they're fine with it because of the adaptogens. But it, just to explain, so that basically the story was when I when I was trying to get better, I had to give up a lot of stuff. And at the time, the science was saying, you know, coffee as well. It's too toxic on the system, blah, blah, blah. So I was like, out of everything that I gave up, that was the one thing that I felt miserable about. I didn't get over it. Like even I'd see Louis drinking coffee and I'd be like, I still really want a coffee. This would be like six months later, you know. Um, and I felt a bit miserable not drinking it because I just felt like it was my one buzz, basically. 
So then after about, about a year and a half, I'd given up. And then I was like, oh, I wonder if I can just research like really healthy coffees. Science was starting to change. Like Tim Spector is a massive advocate now of coffee, good organic coffee with polyphenols in it and blah, blah, blah. So I did a lot of research and then I discovered mushroom coffee and Rich Roll was talking about it. Everybody was talking about it. And basically the mushrooms obviously super kick, you know, give the, the coffee a boost of health. Um, but also it has an adaptogenic, an adaptogenic effect on the coffee. So it gives you the buzz without the crash. Mm. So, um, it levels it out. I don't know how, don't ask me how, but the mushrooms have a leveling effect on the coffee. So the people that are very sensitive to coffee can actually drink our coffee without kind of getting the jitters and getting, you know, the highs and the lows. Um, so it was kind of a no brainer. We worked with someone who's kind of a, a silent partner of our company. And he was like, you know, you should really launch products. What are you really passionate about? And I was like, mushroom coffee. Um, so then we spent a year researching, like, testing and trying we are a bit coffee snobs like trying coffee and you know just getting the one that was the healthiest and tasted the best and then we found a company that would supply the mushrooms and blend it so we now have a mushroom coffee which i drink every day we sell it at our retreats we sell it online and yeah it's just a really lovely product yeah sounds amazing i mean the reason i gave up caffeine was because of my energy dips um Mm. And also part of this test, which was a um, like a genetic test I did, um, works out that actually I crash a lot more than the average person on caffeine. So I'd have a coffee and then half an hour later, I literally want to crawl under the duvet and have a sleep. Yeah. So I, I cut it out and I have the odd decaf now and I don't drink any caffeine in anything else. And it can be quite tricky if you're out and about trying to find a drink without caffeine do you know what I mean yeah yeah I mean they do say that, that it is that it is genetic your ability to handle caffeine yeah um so and some people can you know some people can have like eight coffees a day and they're absolutely fine and and, and like you there's others that really get affected by it I mean it's interesting the dopamine thing because my son is actually um ADHD and you know he's got dopamine as in um, the research that I've done about like dopamine that, that with, with ADHD, they kind of really crave it. And that's why a lot of ADHD people can become quite addictive. So there is a correlating factor. So I have to really kind of support and help him and, you know, make sure that he's got really good like exercise regimes, really good wellness habits mm. so that, you know, as he grows, that he's not kind of chasing that high. And I think with, and obviously ADHD has got to be in my family. My son has it. I probably have it to a certain extent. I haven't been tested, but I think there is a dopamine link there as well. What is the test that you had done? I'm interested. It was by Life Co GX and they gave me this genetic test and they, they worked out I'm really low on um, vitamin D, mm-hmm. um, B12. Um, and, they, and we did a further test and they found out I had a faulty dopamine receptor as well, which linked to me and how why I drink really quickly mm-hmm. Um, and then the second one, uh, did find out about my, um, almost allergic reaction to caffeine because I was having these energy dips and I thought it's a mind altering drug as well. Caffeine, Mm. you know, I got stuck into those bloody energy drinks at some point. And I I was like, I, I remember thinking, God, this is getting out a bit out of hand now. And I remember walking up the supermarket aisle where they were and having the same feeling as when I gave up drinking of mm. like really tempted to buy the four pack of bloody monster ultra, or the white oh, no, one. No, they're really addictive. I know. Really and, and yeah. like, I, I remember thinking, God, I've, I've got to do something about this. And, you know, I was having 
say three or four coffees in the morning in between clients and that. And, and then by lunchtime, I was like, I was so shattered. And it wasn't just the, the work, it was the caffeine thing. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that was the test I did. And it made me look at other areas in my life. So like I don't eat bread now because I realized, I mean, it's interesting when you say don't feed the ducks bread. Why is that then? Like, <laughs> and and I'm I'm just looking at other ways to support my nervous system because I know that, um, like you, Sharon, when I I was drinking, I was constantly in fight or flight in the in the situation I was in, and my nervous system was all over the yeah. place, like mm. hyper alert. I'm a really sensitive person as well, so that tapped into it, and I, I was literally like a bag of nerves. And now what you say about waking up in the morning and feeling quite calm and peaceful, I don't fly around a garden with angel wings on. I just get in a nice bath. No, I don't. I don't even do that. I know it has health benefits, but fuck that. I, I will get in a hot shower, <laughs> believe yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but, I haven't quite bought into the ice no, bath either. <laughs> that's not my style at all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I went in the sea in Northern Ireland um, a few months ago, and that nearly killed me. I, <laughs> I remember saying, I, <laughs> I am doing it, but I stayed with it, and it was yeah, all right. It does give you a buzz. It does. Oh, it's, it's really it good does. for you. Yeah, mm. yeah. But I, I'm trying other ways than <laughs> doing that, yeah. to be honest. But, um, no, it's brilliant. So just before we leave, tell us about your comedy, because you sent me that um, reel yeah. um, on this sober dating, and you you are a brilliant, brilliant double act. So where, oh, where are you with you. your comedy now? Well, we still do it, less so than we used to. Um, but, yeah, we um, – well, I mean, we've done it for years. We we do um, – we did loads of Edinburgh's. Um, we've had sitcoms in development. Um, we wrote a play called Darts Wives, which um, was based on darts players' wives. Um, That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's sort of still going around. We've got a f- we've got a few scripts that are still flying about, and obviously our podcast is a bit of an outlet. We usually do the first five minutes. We do a bit of comedy, as in the concept is is how well have you lived this week? And invariably, Loretta and I will have like messed failed up. massively. Um, <laughs> and we sort of do we write no, we don't write it. We sort of we uh, record a bit of comedy about our week and how we've lived before we share the episode. So that's quite a nice outlet for us. Um, and we're looking to do some live uh, podcast episodes as well um so yeah i mean you know our feet are are kind of firmly in the wellness world but we still we still love doing it and yeah we've still got some some scripts going about it's interesting because yesterday i I attended an alcohol change uk event um and was a speaker there Mm. and um it's something i i don't feel comfortable around but i almost go into a little bit of um a trance just before I go on and think, mm. you know, I've done harder things in my life. So all I've got to do is, is tell my story and hopefully motivate people to think about things, mm. you know, but I was talking to Dapper Laughs, Dan O'Reilly, who was there mm. as well. And it, and now he's doing this tour sober. And he said to me, it's such a different thing yeah, yeah. going onto a stage, stone cold sober in front of all these people who were, drunk inevitably do you know what I mean well interestingly when Sharon and I first gave up alcohol we went and did an Edinburgh show and it was the first time we'd ever done Edinburgh and not drank and it was the first time we finished an Edinburgh show after a month of usually hardcore boozing we got home and I was like I don't want to kill myself this is amazing Mm. 
I think as well, <laughs> again, going back to the dopamine, you know, and, you know, you've got to do a bit of self-reflection as well. But like Loretta and I were addicted to the highs of comedy. So yeah. we'd get on stage. Uh, obviously, if a gig went well, you'd have this euphoric, oh, my God, the material's really working. It's all landing uh, you know, to be in charge of your own creation as well and to get that feedback, that high from the audience. And then you'd come off stage and you'd be on quite high. So you'd kind of almost need the alcohol to kind of level you down again. Yeah. So mm. we would always have a bottle of wine in Edinburgh after a show. That was just like the go-to and it was the release. And then we'd talk about what went well, what should we rewrite? I mean, we loved it, but it all went like like hand in hand. Like I could not imagine doing a show without drinking afterwards. Um, so the first time we did it, I mean, I I had a sort of three year old then and I wasn't a hundred percent well. And I was like, I, I I desperately needed to do something creative because I'd had quite a few dark years and I was like, let's go back and do a show and talk about what we've been through. Like me in a wheelchair, you, your husband leaving you, let's write a show about it. And that's what we did. And we did a barrel of laughs. Yeah. Barrel of laughs. (laughs) It was kind of a dark (laughs) comedy. Um, but it, 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 no, there was lots of like funny moments in it because there's always, I think there's actually a lot of comedy in, in a lot of darkness if you can find it and then express that. I think it's some of the best comedy. Um, but, uh, yeah, we didn't drink and it was like, oh my God. I remember going back. We were a little bit addicted to sugar because I remember going back having like crumpets of jam on and tea and chocolate and, you know, the craving for sugar was still there, but we didn't drink and it was just, it was amazing. And we never drank since. Once we got through that Edinburgh, we were like, if I can get through Edinburgh, yeah. I can do it. we just start, we just continued. We didn't plan to give up. Yeah. We just continued. And then, yeah. then you get to a stage of like, why would I go back? Yeah. Why? This just gives me nothing. So that's, yeah. that's where I am. Like, I yeah. wouldn't want to go back. Uh, yeah, there's no. no benefit to me drinking in my life. I've got everything I need. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. uh, and, and what you did there was get a natural dopamine hit without a drug. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's the best thing. Oh, it's been brilliant chatting to you both. Thank um, you. they can follow you on the Gavin sisters on Instagram and your websites on there. So they can find links to your retreats, coffee, comedy, the whole caboodle. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to to interviewing you. Um, I, I really feel throughout this interview, I, I wanted to keep asking you questions. But I thought I'll save it for our podcast about how you stopped and all of that. But we'll get to it when you come onto our podcast because I'm really intrigued by your story. And yeah, I think you're doing amazing things. Um, so yeah, keep doing all your great work. Thank you so much. And I can't wait either. So <laughs> thanks ever so much both for joining me. And Thank I'll see you. you then. See you then. Bye. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road on Amazon, and you can also follow me on Instagram, at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening, and have a great week.